This is the My Dark Path podcast. I wasn't expecting that my first exposure to the paranormal would occur in a hotel gym at 6 o'clock in the morning in Taipei, Taiwan. I'd just arrived the evening before, and my morning had started in a typical fashion, typical at least when one is on the opposite side of the world and 6 a.m. still feels like 4 p.m. at home. While exercise is my preferred way of dealing with jet lag, a treadmill and jet lag can be a dangerous combination. So as I slowly warmed up, I was texting with one of my brothers. We were confirming that we'd still meet in Tokyo later that week. It was all routine, the chatter on a family text thread that can fill up screen after screen with only a minimal exchange of real information. But my brother, who's lived in Asia for the last 20 years, asked me where I was staying, and I told him I was at the Taipei Hyatt. There was a pause in his response, followed by a simple question, quote, did I ever tell you about my ghost story when I stayed there, end quote. Now, there's not much that genuinely creeps me out. But the question, suddenly and unaccountably, made me shiver. He hadn't told me the story. But as if to clarify that he wasn't just goofing around, he asked, quote, Did you know that that hotel is haunted? End quote. I'd never heard of the hotel as having this reputation. In fact, it was just the location where our physician advisory board meeting was being held, and I was staying for a couple days. But my surprise grew as I googled haunted Taipei Hyatt, And there it was, listed in multiple travel articles as one of the most haunted hotels in the world. But as he told me the story of his stay, of an experience that actually compelled him to check out of the hotel in the middle of the night, my sense of surprise evolved into dread, because I realized that my brother and I had unknowingly shared almost the same ghostly experience. I'd written off the events in my hotel room as the contrivances of a travel-weary brain, but now the memories of the night before came rushing back. There, on the treadmill in the morning sun in Taipei, I realized I had seen a ghost. Hi, my name's M.F. Thomas. I'm an author and a lifelong fan of strange stories from the dark corners of the world. Growing up, I was enthralled by any hint of exciting, forbidden knowledge that waited behind the names and dates we learned in school. And these days, as I travel the world, there's nothing I enjoy more than to get off the traditional tourist map and find a place or story that's been overlooked, dismissed, or ignored. This is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. What's unique? I'm combining personal on-location research with insights from experts, researchers, and historians, so every episode will intrigue, excite, and perhaps send a shiver down your spine. So if you geek out over these topics, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. To see content related to every episode, visit MyDarkPath.com. When you're there, register for the My Dark Path newsletter and you'll be entered for frequent drawings for a unique book or other interesting materials. Also, you can learn more about the Explorers Society. This is a subscription program that offers exclusive episodes, unique and curious items, plus access to amazing live events. So let's get started with episode three, The Haunted Taipei Hyatt. 
Part 1. When you travel to Taiwan, you step into a history so complex that some of the simplest things cannot be taken for granted. Is Taiwan a country? The driver who picks me up at the airport, is he Taiwanese? They might say yes, or they might say they're Chinese. So when we talk about Taiwan, referring to it by that name, even referring to it as a country means stepping into a very current, very fiercely contested dispute that involves over 1.3 billion people. Centuries of history behind these simple terms can be fascinating, and it can be very ugly, and there's even a vacuum where some vital history has been erased. Where history leaves a void, legends like the ghost story I experienced can rush in. But before we get there, let's talk about what we know. This island has been steadily populated for at least 6,000 years, and it's widely believed that the indigenous population was a part of the same farming and fishing cultures that spread on great boats throughout the Pacific Ocean to the Polynesian Islands, the Philippines, New Zealand, and Hawaii. Researchers refer to these people collectively as the Austronesians. In the 16th century, Portuguese explorers named the island Ilha Formosa, the beautiful island. And as European powers established international trade routes, often at the end of a ship's cannon, Formosa was occupied by both the Dutch and the Spanish. This is around the time when the name Taiwan starts appearing, possibly in reference to a tribe on the island called the Tavoan. But it was the Chinese under the Qing Dynasty who fully conquered and annexed the island, driving out all other occupiers. Their rule over Taiwan was heavy-handed and not peaceful. A common saying at the time was, quote, every three years an uprising, every five years a rebellion. Ancient languages and cultures were dying out as Imperial China worked to assimilate the population into their own culture. One common Chinese tactic was to either deliberately destroy local monuments and cultural sites or to revise their history to fit a new narrative. There are even references which suggest that as the capital city of Taipei took shape, several ancient tombs in the region were leveled. These tombs could have held members of ancient tribes or older Chinese migrants, we just don't know. But let's remember these destroyed tombs for later. This tumultuous period lasted for over two centuries until 1895 and a shock that changed Taiwan forever. The Chinese, having lost the first Sino-Japanese War, surrendered the island to Japanese control. For 50 years, Japan colonized and then industrialized. Rebellion and bloody repression were constant and Japan, like China before it, was attempting to imprint their culture on the population. Hundreds of thousands of Japanese settlers moved there, and the people who already lived there became second and third class citizens and were pressured to take on Japanese names. During World War II, it sat along a key transportation route for Japan, and it was also used for the housing of prisoners of war. Now, Nazi Germany largely respected the Geneva Conventions when it came to prisoners, but the Japanese viewed surrender as an act of moral cowardice, and the treatment of prisoners was known to be hideous. An allied prisoner in Germany had a 3% chance of dying in captivity. In Japanese hands, 12% of prisoners died. In addition, there's evidence to suggest that thousands of women from Taiwan were forced into sexual slavery by the Japanese military. 
Many records about the so-called comfort women were deliberately destroyed, and the Japanese government has, to this day, only admitted to a few isolated elements of this atrocity. While German society has openly acknowledged the Holocaust and dedicated itself as a culture to openness and education, so that such an evil might never be committed again, Japan's response to its record in World War II has been more grudging and piecemeal and far from complete. Their history of refusing to acknowledge blame for many war crimes, such as the biological experiments on prisoners of war and the notorious rape of Nanking, haunts their relationships with other Asian nations to this day. After World War II, the Japanese surrendered Formosa, but China was consumed by a civil war, and eventually the communist forces drove the nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek and his followers, the Kuomintang, off the Asian continent. This was in 1949. They consolidated their forces on Taiwan, claiming the name the Republic of China. Chiang Kai-shek's government, based in Taipei, claimed the right to rule the entire Chinese nation. Meanwhile, the communists on the mainland declared themselves to be the People's Republic of China. The Republic of China is still the formal name for Taiwan. Now they and the People's Republic of China both still maintain they're the legal rulers of all of China. A thin strip of water, the Taiwan Strait, separates them. Now the greater wealth, population, and military power of the People's Republic allows them to pressure other countries to minimize their relationships with Taiwan. Nevertheless, the United States and other nations have strived to maintain Taiwan's independence for decades, including the sale of military equipment. Taiwan was under martial law for almost 40 years, with only one political party allowed, and there were frequent mass arrests and repression. But a process of reform began in the late 1980s under the leadership of one of the most important figures in Taiwanese history, while it was the infamous Chiang Kai-shek who established the government of the Republic of China, the man who ushered in a modern age of democracy was Chiang's son, Chiang Ching-kuo. Chiang Ching-kuo's life showed many signs that he might eventually overthrow his father's vision. When he was only 14, he drafted a proposal to create a night school in a small rural province. He believed literacy would help small populations organize and become more self-sufficient. Instead, he was sent to Moscow to be trained and educated by Soviet communists, a high-profile student to strengthen ties between the two nations. There, he married a Belarusian woman and started a family. And meanwhile, his father had become the leader of the anti-communist forces in China as their civil war began. The Soviets detained Chiang Ching-kuo, refusing his return to China. Chiang Kai-shek was offered a prisoner exchange to get his son back, Instead, he wrote in his journal, quote, I would rather have no offspring than to sacrifice our nation's interest, end quote. Finally, after 12 years in the Soviet Union, Chang Ching-kuo was allowed to leave. His father gave him responsibilities befitting a future leader. The younger Chang continued finding ways to empower the less fortunate. He banned prostitution in his prefecture and gave women factory jobs. He invested resources to fight the spread of opium addiction and established a children's village complete with a school in order to get thousands of orphans off the street. When Cheng Ching Kuo followed his father to Taiwan, his personal story becomes much darker. 
Chiang Kai-shek put him in charge of the Republic of China's secret police, and his son took on the job with frightening efficiency and little regard for any kind of human rights. And yet, even as he protected his father's reign from coup attempts and rebellions, Cheng Ching Kuo was developing a modern highway system for the island. After Chiang Kai-shek's death, Chiang Ching Kuo became the president of the Republic of China in 1978. He immediately made major investments in construction and development to bring Taiwan into the modern world. It set loose an economic boom called the Taiwan Miracle. He loosened travel restrictions so that people on the island could visit family members on mainland China. He opened up roles in government for Taiwanese citizens and, for the first time in history, allowed the formation of other political parties. And he did away with the restrictions against the native language of the Taiwanese. For the first time, Taiwanese hokan could be used in schools and in the media. When Chang Ching Kuo passed away in 1988, he had laid the groundwork for a new nation, one with a greater sense of a shared history of the people that lived there. After centuries of subjugation and exploitation by conquerors, there's a pause in the suffering. People can draw on a unique culture that incorporates all the influences that have touched them along the way, Austronesian, Chinese, Japanese, and more. There's now a park in Taipei called 228 Peace Memorial Park. It's there to acknowledge an atrocity Chiang Kai-shek's government long denied, a mass killing of thousands of civilians during an uprising in 1947. It's known as the February 28th Massacre, and the government finally acknowledged and formally apologized for it in the new era of democracy and education initiated by Chiang Ching Kuo. The park has something that I think best underlies Taiwan's commitment to a more peaceful future. It's a sculpture called 228 Memorial Monument. A powerful, graceful spire rises up out of rough, dark cubes. It was designed by a Taiwanese dissident named Cheng Su Sai. When he submitted his winning design, he was in prison, as he had been several times over the years. His first prison sentence came in 1971 after he and other dissidents tried to assassinate Chiang Ching Kuo. A nation that would dedicate an honored public space to a statement of peace made by a political dissident is one that respects just how much peace is worth striving for. And from this park, you can see the luxurious modern Taipei Hyatt. Now, I haven't forgotten we came here to talk about a hotel with a reputation for hauntings. But now that we've taken the long journey to Taiwan and better understand what's come before, let's talk about how a luxurious international hotel from a prestigious American brand ended up in the capital city of Taipei. Part two. The period after World War II saw an explosion in air travel for Americans. The aircraft manufacturers who'd built cutting-edge bombers and military aircraft were now connecting the world with long-range jet-powered airplanes. In the 1950s, people with the means to take recreational trips using these fast new airplanes were known as the jet set. These new travelers who flocked to major world cities were opening a booming new market. 
the need for hotels conveniently located near major airports. In 1954, a pair of entrepreneurs named Hyatt Robert Von Den and Jack Dreyer Crouch opened a motel they called Hyatt House near the Los Angeles International Airport. The house did a decent business, but it was just one small location and the name Hyatt might have been forgotten by history if it hadn't been for a rumor whispered at a fancy party one night thousands of miles away. A 1987 article in the archives of the Los Angeles Times tells this story. Jay Pritzker, one of the many heirs to the Pritzker family fortune in Chicago, was about to leave on an overnight flight to Los Angeles. Somebody at a party told him that Hyatt Robert Von Den, the co-founder of Hyatt House, was a notorious figure in the Los Angeles social scene with a string of high-profile marriages and divorces under his belt, and that he might be looking to sell the motel to make some much-needed cash. So when he arrived in Los Angeles, Jay Pritzker went directly to the Hyatt House. The sun hadn't come up yet, so he passed the time by having a meal in the motel coffee shop. The place didn't look fancy, but he had a feeling that there was a good deal to be had. He made a couple of phone calls, and by 8 a.m., he was having a breakfast meeting at Von Den's home in Bel Air. Pritzker wrote out a proposal to buy the motel for $2.1 million right there in Von Den's kitchen. And a few days later, he was the owner of the Hyatt House. Now, he kept the original name. He thought that travelers would like the sound of it more than the name Pritzker. In mid-20th century America, with people traveling more than ever by both plane and on the new federal highway system, a familiar brand could bring comfort in a strange place, whether it was the golden arches of McDonald's or the highway sign poetry of Burmashave. Leading companies were making their names and logos a part of the shared cultural landscape of America, right at the moment it was becoming the undisputed leader of the free world. Hyatt Hotels soon popped up near the airports of San Francisco, Seattle, and Chicago. Pritzker's vision was to make Hyatt one of those names you could count on for quality and familiarity when you were far from home. Now these days, there are almost 900 Hyatt Hotels in the world. It was the author and columnist Thomas Friedman who proposed the theory that no two countries with McDonald's had ever gone to war with each other. Now this has been proven false on several occasions, but the underlying idea is interesting. The idea is that economic ties of global business can be a sign of normalization between countries and one that reduces the possibilities of military conflict. And as Taiwan moved toward a more open society, they reorganized the central district of Taipei to include a World Trade Center complex and new cultural institutions to attract international travelers. So perhaps it isn't a surprise that their first luxury hotel opened in 1990 would be a Hyatt. The Hyatt I stayed in, the one where I, my brother, and many other travelers have reported strange and unsettling experiences. Part three. We have ghost stories dating back just about as far as we have recorded history. Pliny the Younger, the Roman magistrate whose letters give us a unique first-person glimpse into the inner workings of the Roman Empire, wrote one letter that tells a story of a haunted house in Athens. Anyone staying in this house, he wrote, would be awakened by the sound of rattling chains and see the specter of a disheveled, emaciated man. The shock of the experience could be severe enough to kill someone. A philosopher who was visiting the town 
doubted these stories and to take advantage of a bargain, rented the house that no one else would stay in. The ghost appeared to him too and beckoning him to the courtyard, showed the philosopher a patch of unmarked earth. The philosopher ordered the patch dug up and there discovered an ancient skeleton of a man in chains. When the body was reburied outside the city with proper ceremony, Pliny claims, the specter never appeared again. So many of these details sound uncannily like the haunted house stories we still tell today. A newcomer arrives without much knowledge of the local history. They're skeptical, not the sort of person to believe in ghosts. Then, through an extraordinary, terrifying experience, they discover an old evil, hidden away and buried, a wrong that was never made right. The Romans had strong beliefs about the proper handling of dead bodies, both for spiritual reasons and medical ones, as do most cultures. The Apache believed that the spirits of the dead were innately dangerous, and so they buried their deceased as far from their homes as they could. Meanwhile, the ancient Sumerians believed the opposite, that if a body wasn't buried right on the property of its own relatives, the spirit would haunt the family for generations to come. When I was in the Wuhan province of the People's Republic of China, I noticed that all the door frames in old buildings were raised up from the ground, and you could easily trip and fall on any attempt to enter a building if you weren't looking carefully. I was told that in this part of China, there was an ancient belief that spirits and ghosts were actually very small. And therefore, to prevent them from slipping into your home, you couldn't let your doorway reach all the way to the ground. Most so-called haunted hotels are older buildings with colorful paths. And their owners are more than happy to play up the rumors in order to draw in curious travelers and perhaps sell little merchandise. But that's not what you'd expect from a large-scale hotel just 30 years old, owned by a global corporation that caters to international travelers. I can tell you there was no ghost merchandise in the gift shop. Now, occasionally the Hyatt Corporation has put out a statement to the effect that they have investigated the claims and found no evidence of any ghostly presence. But when I started reading the stories reported by other travelers, there were startling similarities to my own experience. Part 4. I'm not a professional ghost hunter, nor am I a professional skeptic. Just a traveler with a healthy dose of curiosity and a hunger for a good story. But I can with certainty declare this. My brother and I both had spooky, unusual, and startlingly similar experiences, one year apart at the Taipei Hyatt. So with a minimum of drama, here's the story. I just arrived in Taipei and my taxi from the airport pulled up at the hotel in the early evening. I checked in and took an elevator to my room. I opened the door, flicked the entry light on and quickly dropped my roller bag and backpack. And yes, I still use a backpack. Some habits from my nerdy teenage years have stayed with me. The room was large and deep with light from the city peeking through the semi-transparent blinds covering the windows at the opposite end of the room. My first impression was that this would be a very pleasant room for a two-night stay. Although I was anxious to unpack, shower, eat, and get to bed, I wanted to check on the preparations for the meeting that I was hosting the next day. I took the elevator to the conference area of the hotel, where our meeting planner showed me the setup of the room and assured me that all the physician's flights were on time. 
We chatted for a few more minutes and then I excused myself to head back to the elevator and to my room. Although I'd only been gone for perhaps 30 minutes, I was surprised when I opened the door and discovered that the entry light was off. Of course, the surprise didn't last long. Hotels find all sorts of ways to save money by automating the shutoff of electricity and lights. So I stepped inside the room. Without the entry light, the only illumination was provided by those same city lights glowing through the sheer curtains. And there, at the window, I saw a figure. At first, I felt surprised, but then embarrassed. I remembered a previous experience when a hotel gave me the wrong room number and key, and I innocently walked into somebody else's occupied room. Had this happened a second time? But then I looked down and saw my own suitcase where I'd left it earlier. Maybe I'd caught a staff member from the hotel there for an evening turndown service, but who'd paused to appreciate the stunning view of central Taipei. But I wondered, why would they be doing this in the dark? I don't know how long it took me to process all these thoughts and questions. Perhaps most of them came retrospectively. But a moment later, the figure was gone. Just not there. Another surprise, perhaps as strange as the first. Was it a trick of the light? I remember laughing as I thought of the line from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Was this just a bit of undigested beef? That's what Scrooge had suggested to rationalize away his meeting with the spectral Jacob Marley. But at this point, I was too jet-lagged, and I had zero reason to think that it was anything more than the light in the curtains tricking my mind. Like the famous image that seems to show a face on the surface of Mars, our brains sometimes see things they're accustomed to seeing, whether they truly exist or not. So I turned the lights on, hoisted the suitcase onto the bed, ordered room service, and started a shower. And less than an hour later, the moment the last taste of chicken was spooned from the bowl, I was in my bed with the lights out. I double-checked my phone to make sure the alarm was set so I'd make my meeting the next morning, and then I was asleep. I don't know how long I slept, but I remember the sensation of someone sitting down on the edge of the bed. We all know that comforting feeling when, as a child, a parent sits on your bed momentarily, perhaps placing a cool hand on your forehead if you've been sick. We recognize the signals of weight shifting and blankets being pulled away slightly. This is what stirred me from my sleep. I didn't know what time it was, but I was suddenly very sure that something was sitting on the edge of the bed. I felt like I was being watched. And instead of the comforting parent checking on you at your bedside, this felt more like an angry parent staring at you because they just discovered you'd wrecked the car. I felt that rush of fear and anxiety, but I wasn't a teenager and there was no wrecked car. But even with my eyes closed, I felt the presence there evaluating me. I opened my eyes. I was lying on my back. The room was pitch black. I'd pulled the blinds closed to sleep. The presence was there, expectant. And then, suddenly, it wasn't. I flipped on the bedside light. There was nothing on the bed, and for a second time that night, I'd experienced something intense and unusual, but ultimately fleeting. I dismissed it again. Exhaustion, jet lag, too soft a bed, lots of things that can make the first night in a foreign land uncomfortable. It was easy to dismiss. I had work to do and therefore I needed my sleep, so back to sleep I went. It was only the next morning on the treadmill I told you about that my brother shared his experiences. 
He'd stayed two nights in the Taipei Hyatt. On the first, a strange presence had jolted him out of sleep. And then on the second, he'd seen something waiting in his room in the dark, the shape outlined by the light from the windows. After two nights of these lurking, shadowy sensations, he didn't stay the rest of his trip. He packed up and checked out and found another hotel in Taipei. And he'd never told me about this until now, when I was in the same hotel, having just experienced something startlingly similar. It was no longer so easy for me to dismiss what I'd experienced, especially after I started Googling and learned that others had reported their own sinister and unsettling experiences at the Hyatt. Now, as to the mystery of why this hotel might be haunted, most of the speculation is centered around what sat on the land before it was built. We know it was a warehouse and that it was used by the Japanese military in World War II. One theory is that it must have been the site of some atrocity, a secret mass murder of POWs, perhaps. Official records established that the warehouse was used by the Japanese for storing munitions, and later, the Republic of China used it to make and store fireworks. Surviving family members of people who worked in the warehouse corroborate all of this. Though I've mentioned that the Japanese have obscured some historical records, copious notes do survive about their network of POW camps on Taiwan, and these records do not indicate that the warehouse was used as a part of the network. This raises the question, does there need to be a reason in order for it to be a legitimate haunting? Just what are the ingredients of a ghost story that make it memorable to us, that make it something we want to tell our friends despite the worry that it will make us look superstitious or gullible? Why does the why of a haunting matter? Part 5 Now this isn't a theological podcast. I personally believe that we're spiritual beings currently having a mortal experience and are destined to be redeemed by a savior. But thanks to my travels, I also believe that forgotten corners of the world have dark things in them that are beyond our mortal understanding. When I first sat down with my team to talk about this episode, my story editor, Nicholas Thurkettle, asked me a strange question. He said, when you checked into your hotel room, were there flowers? I struggled to picture this. Fresh flowers have greeted me in many hotels, especially in the People's Republic of China, where the beauty of flowers are widely appreciated and celebrated. But there's a concept called confirmation bias, where your observations, your reasoning, and even your own memories can be falsified by your desire. If flowers offered some explanation for what I'd experienced, naturally I hoped that they would have been there. But I was determined to be honest, and after a lot of thought, I said I couldn't remember one way or the other. But I asked Nicholas why he wanted to know, and this is what he told me. Our lead historical researcher, Alex Bagasi, had found this story. In 1902, early in the Japanese occupation of the island, then called Formosa, they offered a truce to the many factions of rebels who were in the mountains and countryside outside of Taipei. Amnesty would be given to any rebel, they said, who came to Taipei and identified themselves by wearing a white flower. As the rebels came into the city, rumors spread among the citizens of Taipei. Why were all these people gathering with white flowers? Some of the locals even put on white flowers themselves and joined the group, believing that they were on their way to collect some sort of a prize. But there was no prize, and there was no amnesty. According to the story, the Japanese led all the people wearing white flowers to a warehouse, barred the doors, and slaughtered everyone inside. 
I can't think of a story that better captures the cycle of tragedy and betrayal that defines so much of Taiwanese history, of something beautiful stained by the dehumanizing cruelty of an oppressor. The story of the White Flower Massacre is stunning and continues to haunt my thoughts. We don't know where this particular warehouse stood and we don't know where the bodies were buried. It could have been anywhere in Taipei, a city of over 100 square miles. But could the presence of flowers, fresh, living, white, pure, draw in the spirits of people who are betrayed and murdered in such cruelty? It feels possible, doesn't it? Possible, yet impossible to know for certain. Or maybe buried deeper in the ground below the foundation are bodies left behind from those ancient tombs we mentioned earlier that were demolished by the Chinese occupiers from the Qing dynasty. Is the speculation that the Hyatt was built on the grounds of an atrocity, just not looking far enough in the past? Possible, yet again, impossible to know for certain. Or maybe the man who helped build the peaceful, prosperous Taiwan that we have now, Cheng Ching Kuo, got more blood on his hands on the path to democracy than we know, owing to his many years of running his father's secret police. The February 28th massacre was not the only time that the Kuomintang quashed an uprising with murderous force. But what responsibility the younger Cheng has for any of this is also lost in the darkest of shadows. Maybe that's the essence of a great ghost story, that the truth always seems just beyond our grasp, that the dark thing always slips away as our eyes open and our minds wake up. And yet great ghost stories connect up feelings of memory and of guilt. They make history feel personal in a dreamlike way. Nothing else gives us that same visceral feeling of touching the past of an unfamiliar place as a good ghost story. And I hope you've enjoyed mine. This dark path we've taken shows there are many tragedies that we can't access through verifiable records of history. In this case, the only memory of them is in the ancient soil of Taipei on the beautiful island where a traveler from anywhere might come and be haunted by the sense that there is more here than meets the eye. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. Please take a moment to leave My Dark Path a rating and review wherever you're listening. I'm so grateful you've chosen to spend time here with me, walking a dark path together. And don't hesitate to reach out via email. Contact me at explore at mydarkpath.com. I'd love to hear from you. Now in two weeks, we'll post episode four, The Strange Journey of Elmer McCurdy. Elmer was a man who really had two lives and whose career in show business really got started after his death. I hope you'll join us. And I'd like to thank the amazing team who works with me on My Dark Path. First, our story editor and showrunner, Nicholas Thurkettle, and the researcher for this episode, Alex Bagasy. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me, your host, M.F. Thomas. Until next time, good night. There is no turning back. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. 
and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Follow the white rabbit. What's the address of the Taipei Hyatt? What's the address of the Taipei Hyatt?